Hello humans. Welcome to the Human Sensitivity Analysis and Rehabilitation Facility. Here, we will be testing you to see if we have desensitized you enough to meet the acceptable sensitivity levels for the general population. Please answer the following questions with a yes or no. Have you ever been told you are too sensitive to suck it up or to get over it when expressing your feelings to others? Does the sound of children screaming like banshees, running amok with parents who aren't supervising their little monsters, bother you? Do you take longer than the acceptable amount of time to heal from painful life events that rip your heart out of your chest and devastate you? Does the impending doom and collapse of the world due to global climate change or geopolitical disasters affect or distract you? from having a carefree life? Do energetic vampires invading your personal space and crossing your boundaries bother you? If you have answered yes to any of the following questions, you will require more time in the shame chamber before we can release you to the general public. See you soon. Life is a crazy and chaotic ride that can leave you feeling banged up even if you don't feel like you're a sensitive person. But if you are a sensitive or highly sensitive or empathic person, this world may have been tough for you. And I want to hammer home the idea that sensitive people aren't visibly sensitive necessarily. They're not the way movies or the media portrays us. They are just like regular people. They are executives and lawyers and successful artists. And it just so happens that deep down, they are deeply affected by the world around them. And for any older, sensitive people that have had to find their own way and their own strategies and grow up in a world that wasn't supportive of who you are and didn't understand who you are, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you had to figure this out. I'm sorry that you had to live in a world that didn't accept you or know what to do with you. And I'm so happy that you're still here. Our guest today is Judith Orloff, who is a medical doctor and a wonderful human who spends her time working in the field of helping sensitive people, highly sensitive people, or empathic people, which she'll describe as we get in the episode. Her book, The Empath Survival Guide, is a collection of all of her strategies and tips and ways to get through this world as a highly sensitive person. And you may be like me, somebody who has really had to find their own way in this world and take a look at the book and go, well, I know all this stuff. But her views and her strategies, tactics, and exercises are really fresh and really wonderful. And it's good to have a reference guide. It's good to have a book that is clearly chaptered. And if you are feeling strong in one area, you can open it to the right place. And most importantly, my biggest wish, if you end up falling in love with Judith Orloff like I have, is to get this book into young people's hands. Get them into people's hands who are currently going through the world not understanding why everything affects them so deeply. So this is my conversation with Judith Orloff. If you like it, there are whispers of a new book coming out in October, I believe, but you can follow her on social media and follow her through her website and get to know when you can pre-order it. And I'll just leave you with that. I hope you enjoy our episode. Okay, we're good. So you mind if we just jump right in? Yeah. Hi. Hi. Judith, thank you for inviting us into your home or inviting me into your home. And uh, I'm really excited about this interview. So am I. Uh, to start off, I like to ask this question, and it can be as big or as small as you want, just however you naturally want to answer it. Who are you? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um, well, I could come up with all kinds of labels which apply to parts of who I am. Um, well, I'm an author, and I wrote The Empath Survival Guide, and I'm a psychiatrist, and I'm an empath, somebody who is very sensitive and doesn't have the same emotional filters and physical filters that other people have, so I feel everything. And part of my challenge has been learning how to not absorb all the stress and emotions in the world and to be centered and happy and of service here on earth. And so, you know, my path has been to balance my intuition 
my empath nature. Uh, I'm a physician. I had 14 years of medical training at USC and UCLA. And so I have a really strong scientific background. And, you know, like everybody, I'm, you know, a soul on earth seeking to grow, which is my primary job description. And the rest of it kind of falls underneath that. Yeah. So I know, I knew of you before you were suggested by, uh, to us. I was. As a guest. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> somebody who had a way of reaching you said, I can get you in touch with this person, right? And put us together. This was a member of my empath support group on Facebook. Yeah. So she, she sold you out and thank, thank goodness she did. <laughs> um, but I was aware of you because your book, The Empath Survival Guide, ran through my recovery community like wildfire when it mm -hmm. came out. And mm -hmm. so I was very aware of the book, naturally resistant to it because my ex-girlfriend liked it. Oh. And <laughs> but I, I knew that this book, your work, this message was a, a great fit for kind of the eclectic group of people we've, we've put together, you know, our community or our audience or however, I don't I actually don't have a good label them but the people who are listening to this program right share a lot with me and i happen to be you know to use your your word empath i'm a sensitive human yes and uh that's part of my how to human like this the title of this podcast would suggest that's part of my journey is like learning how to survive in this world which is very overwhelming sometimes Oh, it's very overwhelming. I have a psychiatric practice where I specialize in treating empaths and highly sensitive people. And so I have um, had the honor of meeting, you know, a tremendous number of empaths and I give empath workshops. And the challenge now being on earth is living on earth with all this, the suffering and the turmoil and the news cycles and then everything that's going on inside of us, all of our emotions and, and how empaths process the outside world, which is a tremendous challenge. But I think that is the beautiful challenge and being human is being empathic and being open-hearted and yet having the centeredness and the groundedness to face things without getting thrown off. Now, that's the discipline of being an empath. And that's what I'm hoping my book will present to people, strategies on how to do that, because many empaths feel panicked, anxious, depressed, exhausted, have autoimmune disorders, and just go through the medical circuit. And that's not the proper diagnosis. Those are not the primary diagnoses if you're an empath. If you're an empath, you need to know you're an emotional sponge who tends to absorb the stress and the positive energy of the world and that you're open and intuitive and loving and maybe more sensitive than people with other constitutions. So the human race has a whole variety of people in it and empaths you know, make up a good proportion of it. And so many people in my world are empaths. And as I've been you know, going on tour for this book, I mean, practically... Everyone says I'm an empath. <laughs> Everyone who interviews me says I'm an empath. And that's, I don't know if they are or not, but they think they are. And so there's a tremendous amount of people who identify with being open, but being overwhelmed by absorbing everything that's happening, you know, in the world. But I personally think that empathy is a trait that's going to save the world. Yeah. What is, if somebody's going empath, empath, like I hear sensitive, like what do you... What is the big kind of bucket of what you consider to be an empath or a highly sensitive person? Well, there's an empathic spectrum. And when you talk about normal empathy or beautiful, ordinary empathy, it's when your heart goes out to somebody else and you can feel what they're feeling. But then if you go higher up on the spectrum, you have the highly sensitive person who's very sensitive to noise, smells, sounds, sights, and tends to get overwhelmed by sensory input. And they also, their hearts go out to people. But the highest on the spectrum so far that I've identified is the empath. And that's somebody who is empathic, has all the sensory equivalents of being sensitive to light, smell, sound, touch, textures, energy in a room. Empaths can absorb the energy of other people into their own bodies, which is a whole different function. And to me, it's related to the mirror neuron system, which is thought to be hyperactive in empaths. 
uh, in the mirror neurons are the compassion neurons in the brain. And it's been shown that narcissists who are on the zero end of the empathy spectrum have empathy deficient disorder, so their mirror neuron system is hypoactive or not really functioning well. And then empaths on the other, the high side of the spectrum, know the compassion is just going on overload. You could feel compassion for the animals that, you know, are being killed to make the food. You know, I have many empaths who are vegan because they cannot tolerate eating animals and the suffering of the process that they go through. You see, so the sensitivity can go really, really deep. And that's why it's important as empaths to really build up all the positives in your life, to have positive people and not, you know, narcissists or drama queens or anger addicts or energy vampires, as I talk about in the Did book. Did you coin that? Oh, God, I've been asked that. I've been writing about it since the 90s. So... I don't know if it was in the literature before then, but what I do know is I popularized it. Such a great word. I have a side to me that is an energy vampire you do? as well. Yeah. So I, yeah, I don't personally feel like, oh, I'm an empath looking out for energy vampires. I am like pretty fluid, you know, so I can go from highly sensitive to very calloused, you know, in, in a week. And But uh, is that a protection when you get callous? It could be. Yeah. Yeah. It could be. I know that. The reason why, for instance, I'm not jumping back into a relationship is I really feel like, man, I fall in love, people fall in love with me. And but by the end of that relationship, you know, a year or a couple years down the road, they're pretty worn out. And so that feels like, oh, I'm probably draining more than I'm putting back in. You know, even though let's say in this last relationship, like I really put my heart into it. You know, I, I took a year of really focusing on who I wanted to be in a relationship. And that was from a, a, a heartbreak where I had to look at my actions right. and go, right. whoa, that's not, you know, I don't want to be that selfish ever again in a relationship. And so this last relationship, like I actively put a ton of work into it, but still all the same, you know, uh, my partner was tired enough that she she had to go she had to break away well do you identify as an empath i do okay all right and did you talk to her about that about being an empath yes yeah oh okay because there's a chapter in the book on empaths and love and relationships are a huge issue to really you know read about because um you know it's an issue that i feel near and dear to me because no, I've been in a relationship for five years now, but that's my all-time record. And I had many, many years alone because I would either attract unavailable people or I would get so overloaded in a relationship. There'd be so many triggers and there's so many forms of drain. It would you know, wear me out and I'd bolt. Yeah, I can shut down and run away pretty easily. Yeah, but that's because we get relationships are the most overwhelming and they can test you. You know, and, and so it's important if you're an empath who wants to be in a relationship, you have to be authentically expressing your needs. And for instance, you know, with me, I need a lot of alone time and I go on sensory overload where if I have, you know, be around too many people, for instance, I need to go and be alone. Uh, whereas my partner has a much larger bandwidth for socializing than I do. And so it's something that we just have to talk about. And sometimes I go through these peaks of sort of panic. You know, if, if I'm overloaded, you know, one time we were coming back from traveling in the airport and in the traveling and I was in the airport in Las Vegas for five hours and that just put me over the edge because of all the people. And I was just, by the time I came home, I was feeling, I can't be in a relationship. That's where I went with it. Yeah. <laughs> and that, and luckily he, he said, well, he goes, maybe you should, you know, just get, have a good cry and go and see how you feel tomorrow. So it, that that's just how I get. So I've learned that I have these peaks of anxiety, even after five years, but it's getting less that I've got to contend with because I just need my alone time. I was an only child. I'm used to connecting to nature and to, you know, being with people. 
we got a phone going, but that's okay, guys. Yeah, I'm used to connecting to nature. And when I was a little girl, I was an only child. I would be in my bed looking up at the moon a lot or looking into the sky or looking into the spaces between things. And I wrote and I love being in nature. So I, my primary thing wasn't being around people. And so especially when you live with someone as an empath, it's quite challenging to have somebody in the same space. You know, it's, you have to have a partner with some degree of emotional IQ who can be able to sit with you and talk with you about your needs, my alone time needs, you know, my need to write as I spend many, many years of my life writing in a room alone. Yeah. You know, and I like that. But I also, if I'm, you know, alone in my room alone without a relationship, I get to a point where oh, I want a boyfriend. I want a relationship. I want intimacy because I get lonely and it's too alone. So the, the challenge is finding the balance between intimacy and alone time and being an empath and finding somebody who's not going to say, oh, you're overly sensitive. You need to get a thicker skin, like my parents said. You know, I grew up in an environment where both my parents were physicians, and I had 25 physicians in my family, and I was this little sensitive girl who would sense things. And I also had premonitions about things, which sort of made things worse for my parents. Yeah, and they, they finally told me, never mention another one of your dreams again at home. So I grew up believing there was something wrong with me. And so my path, healing path, has been finding my own voice. And, you know, I was always sort of a loner or had one friend, as many empaths do, one friend or a small group of friends. And just being good with that. You know, now I love it. I love who I am at this point in my life. And I'm not trying to be somebody different. But as a child, empath children, there's a chapter on that too, on raising empathic children. They feel so much pressure in school because everybody's social. They seem to be socializing and happy. And, you know, I was always in the corner or up in the top of the auditorium alone or with my one friend, you know, so that, but that's fine. I mean, I liked it and it's who I was. And so... You know, in the book, I want to give people permission to be themselves. Now, you don't have to be popular or with a lot of people, you know, in your life. You could be with whoever you want to be with, but hopefully they're positive people. And in relationships, you need to do the work. Not It's a balance between what's too much work and what's the needed work. I think that's a, one of the huge themes of the book is the people in your life. The people? Right. Yeah, yeah. Like the people in your life and, and relating to them. Because as an empathetic person, if you're highly empathetic, you're not going to want to ditch toxic people because you see them as in pain and like that you can somehow help. Right. You know, and so right. I, I feel like a lot of, you know, for me, especially I, I know several times where I didn't run because I didn't want to be the runner. It's like, right. I don't want to run away from you, even though you're totally radioactive. You right, know. but that's where boundaries come in. I right? know. You know, you say, I'm, I'm sorry I can't be around you when you're dumping anger on me. I don't know what the behavior was, but now to set a limit with the behavior, but don't run. You don't have to go from zero to a thousand. You could find that boundary. You have to learn how to set boundaries and speak up, you know, and kind of be the adult in the situation. So I know you feel this way for specifically the most sensitive people. Is that they should, but are you just a general believer of really curate who's in your life? Is that to try and teach people what's important? Is that up there? Is your, the people you're in proximity to an important one? Oh, yes. That, the, that's the energy circle in your life. If you have people who are energy vampires surrounding you, it's a dreadful situation because with empaths, you know, they're attracted to narcissists a lot of the time and vice versa. And that's a very destructive relationship. Empaths love to give and they always think everything can be healed with love and compassion. And narcissists, if they're full-blown, have an empathy deficient disorder. So it doesn't really work that way. So empaths often go on a very hard path of learning that. Um, but the people you, who are around you are key to your own energy well-being. If you have loving friends around you, 
I mean, nobody's perfect all the time. But if you have loving friends who are on a spiritual path who are working on themselves, that's much better than having unconscious people who are asleep and acting out every two seconds or dumping anger on you or saying inconsiderate things. You know, I just heard something yesterday where, you know, a, a, this person that I know went on Match.com and was connected just to a cowboy in Wyoming, and she went to visit the cowboy in Wyoming. Big mistake. With her son, I mean, with her daughter, sorry. And the cowboy, you know, said, oh, you know, I really like you, but your daughter's an inconvenience. Ew. Horrible. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that's just, you know, right in the heart, you know. And so, you know, you can't have that. That is unacceptable. You can't take that back, you see. So with people, you've got to really listen. If you're an empath and you want to have loving people around you, watch their behavior, People can say all kinds of things, but the way they lead their lives, you know, how do they treat the parking lot attendant? How do they treat, you know, their mother? How do they treat who's the stranger on the street? You know, that's how they're going to treat you eventually. <laughs> so, you know, it's good to keep your eyes open in relationship. And you want to have positive, loving people around you, but you don't have to have a lot. You know, right. I, I don't want tons of people. If I have a group over here, I'll have four to six people at the most. No, I don't want more people. Then I, I lose track of who they are. I like to connect. You know, it's very important to me as an empath to have positive connections as they feel divine. I mean, they are the most spiritual things when you positively connect to somebody and you could, you know, you play with their ener energy together. So, you know, you can explore all kinds of different realms. I have a vein of perfectionism and like control mm -hmm. stuff. So mm -hmm. just to give you a, a little bit of like a profile of who I am, just in a nutshell, it's like, I don't do so well with just alone time. Mm -hmm. I do need people, mm -hmm. but I need people on my terms. And that's what makes it very inconvenient, you know, mm -hmm. is that like, mm -hmm. I will want, because I'm sensitive, I will want things to be just the way I like them and people to be just the way I want them to be. And it's caused a lot of pain. And yeah, so yeah. one of the central themes of my growth right now is loving people as is. Yeah. It's very hard. Yeah. And if you love them, you'll let them show you who they are. And it's very different than who you want them to be. Absolutely. It, it always very different. And then as this practice gets a little bit easier, because, you know, I have friends who are total flakes. And right. with the help of, a, you know, great therapists and good work, I found boundaries that make it work where I don't invite them to time sensitive things. Right. I say, right, hey, right. I'm going to be here at some point. If you think you might want to come, text me before you leave because you might not be here anymore. Perfect. But as I've gotten better at that, I have really noticed where people are putting that onto me more mm -hmm. because now my attention is on it. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that I've been repeating in my head is I am not your disappointment because people get disappointed that I'm not who they think I am. That's, that's inevitable. Old Sam would love to bend and contort and be the person who you want me to be at my own expense. Right. And so now there's been several times where people just say, I want, you know, talk to me when you can do this. And I go, okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. You know. Yeah, but you have yeah. to be clear with your own boundaries. I mean, the bending and contorting, that's what empaths do is they try and fit into the, you know, the, the shape that somebody wants them to be because you want to please people. You want people to be happy. You are an over helper. You're a caretaker. Empaths often are caretakers or they help at the expense of their own needs. And, and you know, there's I, I wrote a piece, um, you know, in the book, the difference between codependency and being an empath. You know, codependency is when you become hyper obsessed with other people's needs and you try and become what they want or you're thinking about them so much that you don't think about yourself. You see, so that's that's not healthy either, but it's all about balance. And empaths absorb the energy of other people, and so they actually take it on. And so empaths can tend to be codependent. 
because of that, but it all comes down to, you know, good boundaries. It comes down to the meditation practice, which I'm a big believer in. You know, I have a Taoist teacher and you know, for the past 25 years, and it's been a huge part of my development and learning to sit in meditation and center myself when I'm feeling off or on sensory overload as an empath has been key to my development. And a lot of times if you can't sit, like you said, you don't like having you know that alone time, you could go out in nature or you could go on a bike or you could do some kind of movement meditation or kickboxing or something that, you know, get it out. Whatever's yeah. in there, you know, just get it out because you don't want to hold on to it because then it causes anxiety inside. You know, and empaths are often very anxious because they have their own issues, plus they're absorbing the anxiety of other people. So it's a, a double whammy. And so empaths really need to be aware of asking the question, is this emotion mine, you know, or is it someone else's? So I want to talk about optional relationships, like friendships. Mm -hmm. Start there because I think that's kind of like the most manageable relationships or yeah. optional ones. Yeah. So if somebody starts asking themselves, them, their gut, their higher power, whatever, whoever their consult is, uh, is this person healthy in my life? When somebody realizes that they need to let go of this person, what are the starting strategies to start exploring of facing that hard decision, that fear? Well, sometimes, you know, relationships last for a certain amount of time and then they're over. And so intuitively, you know, empaths are very tuned in intuitively. You can feel when that comes, when that ending comes and it can be sad, you know, where it's time to let this person go. And then when you need to talk to them about that, you know, about that, um, but also there's a strategy in the book called cord cutting, which I really believe in. If you're really ready to let a relationship go, you have two options. You can do a partial cord cutting or a full cord cutting. And the partial cord cutting is something I did with my mother because I found I had taken on her anxiety. She had tremendous anxieties and I was still carrying it around. So I envisioned a cord of light going between me and her and saying, thank you for what you've taught me. And then taking a scissors and cutting that bond and feeling it recoil into her and into me to separate me from the anxiety, you see. Or if you're truly ready to end a relationship, and that's a big decision, you can do a full cord cutting where you cut the bond of light between you. And it's, it's complete, and you have to turn around and walk the other direction and not walk back. It's called honorable closure in, in shamanic terms. But it's a full, it's a big decision to do that. And then another ritual I love, if you're really ready to let it go, is to go out into nature, find a stick, say, I am ready to end this relationship completely, break the stick in half, leave the two parts there, and turn around in the opposite direction and don't look back. So these techniques often help you in a non-psychological way to let go. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah, but it's life. You know, there's, you have to look at why are we here? We're you, you, human beings. We're here in life. This is not a planet of light. It's a planet of light and dark. And the point is to be here and grow and deal with both the light and dark sides. And so if you get the overall purpose of why you're here, then you won't have all these expectations of people letting you down because they're imperfect. Yeah. We are all imperfect. You're imperfect. I'm imperfect. And I think that's what makes us interesting. If you see something like the Stedford Wives, where they made these wives into perfect, you know, wives to serve the husbands, it was scary and creepy. You don't want that. You want to be all imperfect and rough edged on your process. And, you know, as an empath, to accept your sensitivities and know there's nothing wrong with you. You're not weak. You're not a sissy. You're not a crybaby. You know, and, and if you don't know if you're an empath, you can take the, the quiz in the beginning of the book, the empath self-assessment test to answer 20 questions to see how much of an empath you are. It's easy to self-diagnose yourself, but it's important. You know, I think if people are suffering from relationship issues where they're always attracting unavailable people, that's a common 
uh, pattern for empaths because, you know, on an inner level, you don't, you know, you don't have to deal with all of the triggers of intimacy. If someone's unavailable, oh, you could focus on why didn't he call me? I had such a wonderful connection with him. You know, you pine away, but you don't have the, you know, the intimacy issues that you have to deal with, which are intense and, but so worth it. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. For the first time in my life, I think I'm the emotionally unavailable one. Oh, okay. <laughs> so All right. It's very interesting to be on the other. I've, I was always the one attracting emotionally unavailable people. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So. All right. Well, you know, it's just so hard to, to know and to define how much time you need to be with somebody. And when you, when you feel that connection, soulmate connection, you want to be with somebody, how you want to be with them. Yeah. So you don't drive yourself crazy with too much contact. You know, you need to have contact, as an empath, you need to have contact and you need to have time away to process. And then contact and time away. If you're too engaged all the time, if you throw yourself in, you know, to it too much, it might, it's too much. It's overstimulating. So, yeah. I mean, I want to jump into plenty of stuff. Like I have yeah. that urge, but I'm, you know. I'm aware that I would be using people as a tool rather than as somebody to really pour myself into as somebody to keep me company and be my energy pack and cheerleader and somebody who prevents me from being alone. But the truth of the matter is, is deep down, I am not willing to bet my, my heart bank on anything yet. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, uh, I was hurt this year and like, I really gave myself to a relationship that, right. you know, was a wonderful long stretch of time but you know just to be fair i i haven't jumped into anything because i don't feel like i'm ready to gamble getting hurt again good for you well yeah like you know anyone who's who uh is bummed it's like i kind of just like i'm sparing you you know from from me giving you the half of myself absolutely like no matter who you are you don't you deserve somebody's full you do. It's Love. someone who's going to yeah. show up and somebody who has something to offer the relationship. It isn't when you go into a relationship, it isn't just what can I get from the person. Exactly. It's what do I have to give to that person? It's a generosity of spirit if you feel ready for that giving. If you don't, then, you know, there's so many ways to learn that are not the relationship path. You know, the way to center yourself, to learn to center yourself and get really strong so that you know how to do that when you get in a relationship. It's for an, being an empath in a relationship, you know, is a tricky thing. And it's something I've really needed for my soul. But I don't believe it's necessary for everybody. I think if you feel you want to do the spiritual path of relationship as an empath, I hope this chapter of Empaths and Love will help you. But it's a, it's a challenge. It's a path. And it's a, you know, the path less traveled. Because it's not really written about a lot. That's why I wanted to write about it. Because we have particular challenges and we can get through them. But you have to have a common voice and you have to have other people who have gone down that path before to help you. Yeah. So we talked about voluntary relationships, mm -hmm. um, which hopefully anyone listening who has an unhealthy voluntary relationship that is easier to manage. But I think one of the great challenges of being human are, are invol involuntary relationships that aren't healthy. The ones you're stuck with? The ones you're stuck with. The family. And that could be, yeah, that could be family. That could be like, you know. A boss. A boss, yeah. If you, if you don't have a ton of employment opportunities and you have a job right. that pays your bills. Right. You know, you can feel, even though you do have the choice to show up or not, it very much doesn't feel like it. And in some cases, isn't a real, you know, that's like a privileged, uh, you know, to just go, well, just leave your job can sometimes, well. Right. That, that's, no, you can't leave your job. But yeah. the one thing, though, we can control is our attitude. Oh, no, yeah. we, we can inflict suffering on ourselves. No, it, it's what goes on in your mind and all the stories you tell yourself about other people isn't really reality. You know, reality is here and now. And so if you can ask yourself, what would my life be like without focusing on how much my boss is victimizing me and focusing on something else, how would that feel? 
So it's an exercise in changing your focus and setting boundaries and lowering your expectations. Now, one of the key problems that many patients come to me with, because I live in Los Angeles and work in the entertainment, they work in the entertainment industry, is they have these narcissistic bosses who are running studios or are running departments. And it's just craziness, you know, to be, to be um, under somebody like that. And so how do you deal with that? They don't want to leave their jobs. They want to stay and work. They like the job. But how do you keep your center, you know, with a narcissistic boss, you know, or a punitive boss or a borderline boss who dumps anger on you? Yeah, rages on you. Rages on you. What are, what's the, you know, a basic toolkit? You know, those tiny little first aid kits? Yeah. Like what's in the the basic toolkit of dealing with those kinds of situations and setting up? I think boundaries is a huge core yes. of your work with people. Oh, boundaries yeah. are so important to be able to, you know, set limits and boundaries rather than be emotionally reactive to it. I don't suggest that people emotionally react in work situations like that. It's useless. I don't think it's really helpful unless you have a really enlightened work situation that allows for that it's you you need to get your support somewhere else and you need to look at this person and say they are incapable of giving me what i need i need this job situation and so when i'm with them i'm it's almost mechanistic where you're you're almost like a machine or you're neutral where you take care of things you're pleasant but you don't react to what they're saying even if they dump anger on you you just try and get out of it as soon as you can you don't stay there but the thing is your buttons will be pushed. All your insecurity buttons, everything, and all your wounds will be activated by this person. So I always suggest that people look at even people like this energy vampires as spiritual teachers. Now, what do I have to learn from them? What is being emotionally triggered in myself that I could work on on my own so that although it's terribly annoying what they're doing and hurtful, it won't get into my gut. So you can use anyone as a prompt to self-heal. And what are what are some quick you know quick boundaries to maybe help people get from showing up to work to getting home with less shit on them? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, to take do a three minute meditation during the day to connect to your higher self, your heart, to center yourself, and to feel strong. And also to laugh. There's always somebody at work you could find, you know, who you can laugh with or go, you know, for a walk with or whatever. You just have these little breaks from the intensity. You don't, the worst thing to do is to focus on what's not working at work because empaths, especially in the open air environments without even pods anymore, there's a workspaces are just open. So empaths feel everything. I mean, they hear their coworkers talking, they hear their gums snapping, they sneezing. No, just horrible. You know, rappers crunching. As empaths are very sensitive to sound and smells, you eat food, smells of food, it's horrible. And so how do you find your own space and make your own bubble in an environment like that where you can, you know, visualize yourself being in a protective bubble in your pod in your workspace so that you can and wear headphones even on your lunch break if you're not going anywhere for lunch you know and just sit there and create a beautiful environment and have a sacred space on your desk you know have crystals have sacred objects have you know whoever your heroes are have gandhi picture of gandhi sitting there so you can say i aspire to be like you know and to lighten it all up too as your mind can put the squeeze on it and make it work it up or work it down you see so you can make anything worse you can create suffering wherever you go and empaths are good at that because they tend to be overly serious about things i have a tattoo that it stands for don't take yourself too seriously yeah yeah yeah, or anything. You know, it's a big cosmic joke in a certain sense if you can get there. No, but to just say, all right, you know, I'm going to use this situation at work to connect to myself, find people I could connect with, and make the best of it in terms of accepting limitations and setting boundaries. So that in itself is a huge spiritual exercise for empaths, you know, to do that. And the problem, though, at work is the whole conception of emotional contagion because empaths are open to emotions as they spread throughout a workplace. And when you have somebody who comes in who's fearful or anxious, that can spread 
throughout the entire workplace. And if you're an empath and super open to that, you could, you know, just get have an anxiety attack at work, picking up other people's anxiety. So at those times, you know, the bathroom is the refuge where I tell people just excuse yourself, go to the bathroom, meditate for three minutes. You have to get out of it. You have to just break the energy cycle. I do that at parties. Yeah, Because I don't do well at house parties. And so I'll either go to the bathroom for three or five minutes or I will just I've literally gone out, walked around the block and come back several times. Right. Because I do well for 10 minutes in a party. Yeah. And so I just break it up. Great. You know, and so if I'm there for 40 minutes. Yeah, that's a wonderful that, strategy. That means that I'm taking these five minute breaks and like, you know, no one's paying attention that I'm, no, no one cares. No, I, I often wander around. I like going in the kitchen, you know, and talking to the people in the kitchen, you know, I just feel more comfortable there for some reason. And then I go back. So breaking it up is really good. If you're an empath at a party or empath in an intense situation, you can break it up. You don't have to stick it out every single second. The breaks are amazingly re-energizing. Yeah. One of the things you brought up in your book that I related to is as a sensitive person, you can feel like garbage and it's not actually your thoughts or feelings. Right. And so uh, to paraphrase you, you wrote, try to figure out which emotions belong to me and which belong to someone else. Right. And what's a quick inventory of that kind of look like? In terms of like, whoa, I have all these wild beliefs, you know, often for me, they're about myself and I have to figure out like, did this come from me? Did this come from, you know, Jenny in the third grade? Like where, where did this Mm -hmm. come from? Mm -hmm. Well, I usually suggest that people journal about it and do your top five emotions that you're suspect of. No fear, insecurity, panic depression, low self-esteem, whatever it is, and see which ones you can track back to your childhood. And those are suspect in terms of these are your issues you need to work on. However, if you're in an environment and you're not sure whether somebody's your emotions or somebody else's, you could move 20 feet away from them. And the further you get away from them, the less you're going to feel their energy field. So you can sort of tell, does my anxiety go down when I get a distance away from the person? That's one way to tell. Digital too. Digital distance. Oh, absolutely. Unfollow. Digital. Yeah. Oh, it's it, everywhere. It's You don't even have to have digital. It can just come across you know, the miles you know, through psychic space. <clears throat> so it can have all kinds of repercussions. I have a couple of questions from guests, which are extensions of things that we've already talked about. So one person is having a particularly hard time cutting the cord. And right. she, she wrote, I have an abusive family that continually tears me apart, but it's my family of origin. And how do I let go of this, you know, as a species, we, we've deemed our family of origin crucial, crucial, sacred role in the narrative, you know, in the development of right, us right. as a species. Mm-hmm. And how, if that is, you know, if that is the case for her, how does she, what are some ways to, to visualize why it's time and how to actually let go of it without losing yourself in the process? Well, it's grief work and it's acceptance work. And, you know, on behalf of her family, I apologize for them, you know, that she did not get the love and the nurturing that she deserved. And it's it's sad and it's unfair and it didn't happen. And so for her not to keep going back to that family and asking for things. I'm a big believer in surrogate parenting, where if you didn't have the parents that you needed, that you could find other adults who are wonderful at parenting, who can help you with various things. You know, I personally had about four surrogate mothers because I needed a different kind of nurturing. My mother gave me certain things, but she didn't give me other things. So I've had, you know, I've had four of them and they're still alive. They're getting really old at this point. 
right? <laughs> but I've been blessed to have them. And I've spent a lot of time with these women. You know, they were mothers mainly. I didn't go for surrogate fathers so much. Interesting, except for boyfriends. You know, that, sure. They always can fill in for that role. My partners, you know, I, I said to him, you're just like my father. He goes, oh, well, that's my job description <laughs> to help you with that. But it's it's important for your friend to find people who can nurture her and to give up all hope of getting it from her family. That doesn't mean she can't see them, but she must eliminate her expectations of them and also set very clear boundaries so they don't hurt her. And when somebody separates from an abusive family like that, the abusive family doesn't like it. They don't want her to leave. Yeah. You know, they want her to do that dance. And she has to grieve the fact that she didn't get what she needed from them and accept that as if she keeps going back to that. It's going to be very destructive for her. And she doesn't need to do it anymore. She, I could feel her. She's strong enough to put some distance. Similar one, but very fascinating. I'm so grateful that this stranger shared it with us because it's a unique situation that I'm sure is out there. She had a abusive father who she successfully separated. She an from. empath? Yeah, I'm 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 sure of it. I'll tell you the so the the details are is that she has a son who has a, a form of mental illness and his outbursts, his his disease cause him to mimic similar rage-like patterns mm. that her father had. Right, right. And so here is this person that she loves to death yeah. who, without even really meaning to, continually triggers this past trauma. And so she, you know, this is someone who is dependent on her. Right. And she needs to be there for it. But how can she start to think about showing up for the child with, but taking a little bit less damage when he starts to resemble these characters that have been in her life in the past? Right. Great question. When empaths are healing, a lot of empaths have to do with post-traumatic stress situations where something happened in their childhoods that get triggered in the adulthood. And so it's like, you know, the combat veteran coming back from war where they're in their normal lives and a little something moves and suddenly a big explosion from the past comes back. So it's a post-traumatic stress, a little thing. You could say the wrong thing to me and I could go back to war. And the same thing happens with her and her son, where her son is being her son and his karmic path of whatever he's needing to learn on that path. And she's getting post-traumatic stress from her initial experience. So she has to realize that's what she's dealing with. And yeah. that helps. That helps to put a frame on it. And it's important to reframe and say, this is not my original family. This is my son. And this is the story I'm telling myself about it that's being triggered. And EMDR is often helpful to reprogram traumas, which is a kind of a tapping brain technique to reprogram those traumas so you don't project them onto your current situation. This ties right into something else, which is, what is there a direct relationship between PTSD and sensitivity, between trauma there can and sensitivity? Be. There can be. Um, I've written a lot in the book about where being an empath comes from. Is it genetic? Is it environmental? Is it temperament? Is it trauma? And it could come from all those places. Um, some babies, when I went through medical school, I worked in the um, delivery room for my OBGYN rotation, and I delivered babies. And some babies come out just like very sensitive, open. You can just see they're feeling their environment. And other babies are just not. <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole different temperament. So you can see that, that some babies are born empaths. And yeah. it's beautiful when they come out. All babies are beautiful, you know, in that sense. But it's a different temperament. And I personally think also there's a genetic component of being an empath that it can run in families. But it also can be modified by trauma. If an empath was brought up by, you know, an abusive household, their defenses are going to be worn down so much more and they're going to be traumatized so much more than a child that had really ingrained defense mechanisms. 
And so the trauma can either exacerbate the pain of being an empath or it could turn a non-empathic child into an empath. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, because the trauma is so intense. When you're neglected, you know, when you're not seen, when you're told all these things that are not accurate about yourself and you begin to believe it, that wears down your mind, body, and soul. It's it's really huge. And so a lot of empaths that I work with and in my empath support group on Facebook are recovering from post-traumatic stress. Yeah. And that's just part of the recovery of being an empath. But you have to define it that that's what's happening. When you're getting upset at your spouse for whatever it is he or she is doing and it feeds into what your parents did, that could be a post-traumatic stress reaction from your childhood. And so you're exaggerating it in your current day life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do love that some of it can be taken on by you yeah. in terms of like, what's my relationship to this story? Like how almost, you know, we got, I got a chance to talk to Byron Katie and almost like how much of this is true, how much is true. Cause there is truth. (laughs) These things, you know, I think that's what makes them so it's like that's the best fictions have truth to them. And Mm -hmm. it's like the best Mm -hmm. traumas that have become kind of exaggerated have that truth to them. Mm -hmm. So there's always Mm -hmm. some anchor to go, no, it's real. Mm-hmm. Like my reaction, my pain to this is is dead on. Mm-hmm. This is an empath's path to healing, everything we've been talking about. And it can be intense. But what's liberating, as we're talking about the more difficult aspects, um, what's liberating is once you get a handle on some of these things, and you can, you begin to feel free and open and use your sensitivities you know, to enjoy life and feel the passionate mysteries of the universe and love and be compassionate and connect and be intuitive and explore all that. I have a section in the book on intuitive empaths, precognitive, telepathic, mediumship, plant empaths, earth empaths. You know, we have all kinds of human capacities that empaths can develop in themselves, which are fun and, you know, take you to places, you know, that dwell in the deep mystery. Where, because, okay, so I am a believer that there is natural places for fight and flight. Mm-hmm. And so in my own world of anxiety, there are places that the only thing that helped was voluntary exposure and getting through them. You know, like me showing up to these things that really were intense, but on my own terms, you know, setting up very safe ways Boundaries, to do that. Yeah. How do you determine what are things that you should face and what are things that you should walk away, that these are not your issues that are the world's issues and you should just distance yourself from do you have a kind of a a natural way to kind of start to use like a compass to figure out this is something i should walk towards and yeah and this is something i should walk away from well empaths have the gift of intuition and you can always ask yourself inner questions you know is this something i need to deal with now Do you get an intuitive yes or no? An intuitive yes is you move forward with it. It feels right. It might be difficult, but you want to do it. That feels right. If you get, "Mm, maybe not now, I'll shelve this and do it later. Because timing is critical when you deal with certain things. Mm. And you don't want to deal with too many things at once. You want to deal ideally with one thing at once, Um, especially if it's hard. So you can devote all your energies to it. You don't want to get overwhelmed. So... In my life, I intuitively see, is this something I want to move towards? It's a question I ask myself each day and throughout the day as I listen to my intuition about how, how I make choices on, you know, do I want to do this podcast with you? Do I want to go here or there? You know, do I want to do this project? I always listen. And sometimes I might get a lot of things I might like to do at once, but I have to pick and choose because I know I get overloaded. And no is okay. I love no is a yeah. complete sentence I write in the book. And I really believe it. I love saying, no, no, I'm so sorry. I can't do that right now. I wish I could. But, 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 no, sorry. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just yeah. no, but say it nice. Right. You don't say it mean. So you were told to have a thicker skin. Right. And I'm curious of how do you preserve the beautiful part of being empathic while also not ending up 
the question was simply put, how do I shield myself from the world? But like, if, if mm-hmm. I think of it in terms of like somewhere on the spectrum of like starting to become like agoraphobia mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. going to the coffee shop where everyone's talking at once is overwhelming. Right. How do you, in a healthy way, kind of put up a, a shield uh, uh, energy without like becoming calloused or getting, you know, toughen up kind of what is the healthy way to start to approach these situations? Well, in a sense, so do it your own way and what feels right to you. If you don't feel like going to the coffee shop, don't go. Um, if you feel that you have a phobia about going outside and, and you want to face that fear, then that's a little different. You can go and stay in the coffee shop for two minutes and desensitize yourself and then come back and ask yourself how you're feeling. But be very compassionate with yourself the whole time. You know, is is empaths become agoraphobics because the world seems too much. And it is too much. <laughs> if you don't have strategies, you know, if you don't have grounding mechanisms, if you don't know how to shield yourself, which is literally visualizing a shield around your body to protect you from the energies that are coming at you, you can do that. Um, you can visualize a very effective shield. Many therapists do that that I know with difficult patients because they can't take the energy or if they work with borderlines. It's just too much anger to deal with. So they put up a shield and it protects them so they're able to not be bombarded by toxic energy. So the shielding technique is a technique that I talk about in the book and you can use it you know, if you want to. But even more important than shielding is learning how to ground and center yourself amidst negative energies and learning to breathe out negative energies. You never want to hold your breath around them. And people get afraid, so they hold their breath. And so you have to keep breathing it out. You have to keep meditating and centering yourself. You have to keep setting boundaries and saying no and allowing people the dignity of their own past so you don't jump into their karmic journey and try and fix it. That's extremely draining. Yeah. Yeah. I'm naturally attracted to a lot of the kind of physical or conscious choice of ritual that you set up, mm-hmm. like with, with with shielding where you're not just like, ah, toughen up, but you're like, okay, I am going to place a mental, you know, a, a mental kind of shield up for this experience just so it's not so intense. And because, you know, I personally, you know, I personally don't believe that like my friend's crystal is what's healing me, but I believe that me picking up the crystal as an object of healing and going, okay, I'm going to give everything into the crystal. I believe that the ritual of it is where the, the, the magic is essentially like the, the consciousness of, of it, of saying, I'm going to put this down. I'm going to breathe this out. Right. Is Right. So Taking ownership is wonderful where you can say, this is what I'm going to be doing to deal with this negative energy. And sometimes mental energy and willpower is very helpful too. If you, you know, get barraged by negativity or toxic energy, sometimes you have to fight your way through it and just say, I'm not giving into this. You know, the mental energy is, is important too. You know, you can summon that will and say, no, this isn't going to touch me. So it's not just being the sensitive thing that's going to wilt at anything. You can summon your will. You can summon your heart. You can summon all the strategies I discuss in the book. So it's, you know, it's a combination of using all your forces you know, to ground yourself and to say no to certain things. That's about growing stronger, becoming an empath warrior, the way I like to think about it. It's just strong and vulnerable, you know, knowing when to call on what strategies so that other people's negative energy can't get to you. I mean, that to me is transcendence, you know, and spiritual growth is learning how to do that. And that doesn't mean that you're not afraid or that your buttons aren't pushed. It just means you know how to handle it. So you're not, you don't go under for six months every time something challenging happens. Where should people start you know, where would you point people to or concepts you'd like to at least introduce them to for people who are trying to be supportive of sensitive people, whether it's their children or their partner mm-hmm. or their coworkers, and they they are aware that this person's sensitive. And, you know, if you're like even me as a sensitive person, sometimes when I'm working with or near another sensitive person, like let's say my son, yeah, um, 
it's hard to handle that because mm-hmm. I'm like, I just, I just want you to do, do it, you know, but the, it, that's not the way it works. <laughs> no, it isn't. Um, and so just, I mean, there are many different people, but in terms of supporting sensitive children, you have to ask them how it would be most comfortable for them to do it and to have a dialogue about what their needs are and if they're reasonable or not and begin to talk it out. Because sensitive children, for instance, during parties, if parents have a party and the child hides under the steps, what you don't want to do is force the child to come out and be with people because they're processing it in their own way and they're doing what they need to be doing. And so if they need alone time rather than going on a million play dates, you need to schedule in that alone time for them because they're not like other children. They need, you know, the the time for imagination, creativity, looking at the outside, you know, and, and they have a very strong interior life. And so you have to have an ongoing dialogue with, say, your son about what would make it work for him. And then you could tell him what would make it work for you and come to a conclusion. But it's a little out of balance because he's a child and you know, he's nine years old. So the power dynamics. Yeah. 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 That's tough. I definitely want him to show up at the party. Right. No. Yeah. Uh, just to, to use that metaphor. Yeah. 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 So that that would actually mean a lot of work on my part when he tells me what he wants to do and it's not what I want him to do. Yeah. Yeah. But is it destructive what he wants to do? I mean, no, most times probably not. What does he want to do? Oh, well, I don't know. If I'm like, hey, yeah, let's go to the farmer's market, you know, and he's like, I don't want to do that. And I'm like, no, it'll be good for you. Come on, you know. It's very busy. Ask him if he wants to go for a walk in the forest. Yeah. Well, a lot of the times he'll say, he'll say no to that. But when I take him to the nature, he always loves it. So that's one of those ones where I'm like, no, I know you're going to like this. Yeah. Which this is a a great question. And I think this is going to be the, the last question besides the, the way I like to end this program, but which emotions do we, you know, I often feel like, especially with me who I have some, you know, clinical mental illness stuff there's some lying happening in my brain you know or there's you know if i just listen to my brain but at the end of the day i'm a ugly piece of shit who's never going to achieve anything and you know it's just my mind can be a liar and so this person asked which emotions do we trust and how do we know what's real and what's exaggerated you trust the heart and compassion. You never trust the voice that says, I'm a lying piece of shit who will never amount to anything. That's not true. <clears throat> That's a delusion. But if someone, if the voice says to you, you've been through such a hard time and you've done so well and you're moving along step by step and I love you. That's the one you want to trust. How How do you know... If you're speaking to an authentic voice or not. Oh, I think love is always an authentic voice. And sometimes you might not feel it. You might act as if. But as long as you act as if, you're heading there. Yeah. So if there's love in the message, you might want to listen. Yeah. You might want to listen. If you have some voices pounding you about how horrible you are, then it's most likely untrue. Yeah. Do you feel like that, that inner kind of harshness is out of some weird distorted sense of love no no not at all it's human nature uh, my spiritual teacher says that if we beat ourselves up a little bit less each day that's spiritual progress mm. it's human nature i love that so judith you've been great and thank you for your time and for the book i know actually a handful of people in my life that really it it spoke to them deeply Oh, I'm so happy. And uh, even though I started reading it late because of my resentment, <laughs> um, because of my ex liked the book. Oh, so oh like, yes, I'm yes. going to avoid this book. Um, oh, 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 right, right. I'm about halfway through and I'm really enjoying it. And oh, I'm so, so thank happy. Thank you for this. I think it's a gift to many people. I like to end the program this way, which is if I could hand you a phone and on the other end of it was a younger version of you at your most vulnerable, most powerless self, most confused point in your life. 
and you could give a brief message. You could just pick up the phone and she'd be listening. Young Judith would be listening to you. What would you say to her? I'd say keep trusting your intuition. You're on the right track. Don't worry about what everyone else is saying. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Hey, so that's the end of this conversation. But if you don't want the conversation to end, you can follow us on social media on almost every platform. We're at hellohumans.co, except for Twitter, which has an underscore CO. Our website is hellohumans.co. We have great stories, videos, and the episodes live there as well. And for more of our guests, for more of any of our guests, I always post their social media, their books, their videos, their art. In the show notes, which is another word for the podcast episode description, and it's available wherever you're listening. I promise you just have to click around. If you'd like to help us out more, there's a few ways you can help. Please share this podcast with your friends or people that you think would get value out of it. Writing us a review on iTunes is incredibly helpful for our ratings. And also, of course, this program is not possible without listener community contribution so our patrons are our financial backbone of this product that's how we manage to do this ad free you can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash how to human that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash how to human this is the how to human podcast a production of hellohumans.co until next time have a great day